All right, let's continue our series here on using the law lawfully, looking at the Old Testament law, seeing if it applies to us as Gentile believers, and if it does, how does it? So we're going to start. Everyone should be in Leviticus 19. We're going to start with verse number 17. So Leviticus 19 and verse 17. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. So we're going to look at two commandments here in this verse. The first one is hating your brother. It's the Old Testament command given right here in Leviticus 19.17. Jews were forbidden from hating their brothers. Shouldn't be anything complicated for us. We all know that this is also repeated in the New Testament for us. Uh, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. And verse 9. So 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 9. So the Jews were commanded that they're not allowed to hate their brothers. Christians also have that same command given to us in the book of 1 John. 1 John 2 9 He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. So darkness and light are contrasted throughout 1 John. Uh, darkness is sin and being in the world. Light is righteousness and being in God. And so when it says that he that saith he is in the light, that means you're claiming to be righteous and be walking with God, but you hate your brother, you're actually in darkness, meaning you're in sin. Uh, so hating your brother is a sin for Christians. Uh, we can see this other places in First John. Let's go to chapter 3. Can I ask you a question? Uh-huh. Is he talking about spiritual brothers or sibling brothers? Yeah, spiritual brothers is what he's talking about here. The, okay. the brothers throughout First John is referring to brothers in Christ. So turn to verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse uh, 15. We see the same thing here. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Okay, so again, hating a brother is equated to murder, which murder obviously is a sin, still a sin for us as Gentiles. So therefore, hating our brothers is also a sin. And then the next chapter over, 1 John 4, and verse number 20. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And so again, we see uh, for Christians, this command that you're not to hate your brothers is repeated for us in the New Testament. So this command also applies to us as Gentile believers and not just to the Jews under the Old Testament law. So that's the prohibition against hating your brother. And let's go back now to Leviticus 19.17. There are two laws given in that particular verse. So we'll look at both of them. <clears throat> so going back to Leviticus 19, verse 17... 
We read again, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Okay, so here we have the command to rebuke your neighbor when he has sinned. So the Old Testament command given here is that the Jews were to rebuke their neighbors when they see them do something that is wrong. Uh, it's just walking down the road, you see a man uh, stealing. You're not to just pass by and say, that doesn't affect me. He's stealing from someone, that's something wrong. You're to approach him and rebuke him. That's what the Jews were supposed to do. Had they followed that, their society would have uh, been a lot more moral and uh, they would not have fallen into sin as often as they did. Uh, but they failed to follow this command generally uh, and did not rebuke each other when they were caught sinning. That word rebuke, are there more, is there more than one meaning to that word? Obviously, more than one meaning to that word. Well, there's various. Right, it's, there's various um, flavors of the same definition. The definition basically means to tell someone that they're wrong. Um, it's not so much a punishment, that's the responsibility of the judges uh, and the court system. They, they handle the punishment. But just an individual should look at the person and say, you shouldn't do that, that's wrong. Um, so that's a, that's a rebuke. Okay, now for the New Testament. We find that as Christians and as Gentile believers, we're also supposed to rebuke those who sin. Let's turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17 and verse number 3. familiar passage here, Luke 17, 3. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Okay, now this is specifically talking about brothers. It's not talking about just anyone you see in passing. But we can see other places in the New Testament that it's applied to just anyone that you happen to see in passing. Let's go to Galatians chapter 6 first. Galatians 6 and verse number 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Uh, the word rebuke is not used here. The word restore is used. That means to restore them to a place of fellowship with God and with the, the church. Um, but in order to do that, you have to first tell them that what they're doing is wrong. So the rebuke is implied. Uh, here in the, the book of Galatians. Uh, but let's go now to Ephesians, just a couple of pages over. Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> Ephesians 5 and verse number 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And that word reprove means to prove them wrong to show that, that what they're doing is not right. So that's what we're supposed to do towards the unfruitful works of darkness. That's anyone that's committing sin. We're to demonstrate to them that what they're doing is wrong. And then now let's go to Titus. 
start in chapter 1, Titus chapter 1. I really like Titus chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and 13. I find it kind of humorous. This is Paul writing to Titus. Titus is a uh, going as a missionary uh, to the, the Cretans, the, the people of Crete. And so he's preaching to them. Paul is giving him some instruction on how to preach to the people of Crete. And so Paul tells them, one of themselves... Even a prophet of their own said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. And so Paul says, hey, they, they say of themselves that they're always liars and evil and slow. And he said, and that's true. That's exactly what they are. Those people are a bunch of liars, and they're evil, and they're slow, and hard to understand. So you need to rebuke them harshly. <laughs> so it's kind of a humorous uh, statement from Paul, uh, but it gives us the uh, evidence that this idea of rebuking people sharply when they sin is something that we are supposed to do as Christians. Now, in this case, it's sharply because they were so hard-headed and uh, slow and uh, always lying. The sharpness of the rebuke is not necessarily uh, always commanded, but Sometimes it's necessary. All right, then let's go one chapter over, Titus chapter 2 and verse 15. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. And so there are many other verses we could have looked at. I just grabbed uh, these few. There's lots of occurrences of the concept of rebuking someone throughout the New Testament. So this command for the Jews to rebuke the neighbor that they see sinning is also a command for us as Gentile believers that we are to rebuke those that we see in sin. Uh, unfortunately, we're about as good at doing that as the Jews proved to be uh, in their day. And that's why American society is going so far downhill. The Christians are afraid to speak up and say that what you're doing is wrong. And I can understand the fear. I mean, you think back just in the Bible days, uh, John the Baptist, the reason he was beheaded is because he looked at the king and said, or the uh, ruler and said, it is wrong for you to have your brother's wife. He said, it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. Uh, and made the man so mad, he ended up imprisoning him and uh, eventually cutting off his head. So there's a good chance that telling someone that what they're doing is wrong is going to get them mad and they're going to retaliate it's not going to be a pretty picture uh, but that's still what God commands us to do and if we're willing to do that we can turn our society around and make it shameful again to commit those sins uh, bring them out into the light and show everyone this is what this person is doing and what they're doing is wrong uh, and here's why it's wrong and we can turn society away from sin and back toward God. But we have that same command for us that we are to rebuke sin just as much as the Jews were supposed to rebuke sin in their society. All right, any comments or questions on these two before we move on to the next one? 
All right, well, let's go now to one that's a little more light. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse number 6. We'll look at two more here. And these two do not apply to us as Gentile believers. These were just commands that applied to the Jews. As far as I can tell, there's nowhere in the New Testament or in the Old Testament that indicates that these commands apply to Gentiles of any sort. Deuteronomy 22 and verse number 6. So Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse number 6. If a bird's nest chance to be before thee in the way, in any tree or on the ground, whether they be young ones or eggs, and the dam sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, thou shalt not take the dam with the young, but thou shalt in any wise let the dam go and take the young to thee, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest prolong thy days. So here's the Old Testament command here. And here we see that the Jews were prohibited from killing the mother bird when taking the eggs from the nest. So they're out gathering eggs or gathering meat to, to eat. They find a, a bird's nest and think, all right, we can have eggs for breakfast. So they, they get the eggs. Well, the mother bird happens to come along also or is sitting on the nest and is there. They can't kill the mother bird and take the eggs. Uh, so they can only take the eggs and they have to let the mother bird go. So that's the, the Old Testament command. Now, if you read in the Jewish commentaries on this, they have some really uh, wacky twisting that they've done to try and get around this law. They take where it says, uh, if a bird's nest chance to be before the end the way in any tree or on the ground. They say, if it's on a tree, you can't take the mother and the, the eggs at the same time. If it's on the ground, you can't take the mother and the eggs at the same time. But if it's on a hedge, then you can take the mother and the eggs at the same time. And if it's on a, a ledge in a building, then yes, you can kill both the mother and take the eggs at the same time. They come up with all kinds of little ways to finagle their way around what God's actually saying, following the strict letter of the law and ignoring the spirit of the law entirely. Uh, the spirit of the law is that if you're going to take the eggs, you leave the mother alone and don't, you know, don't kill the mother also. Now, as far as for us as Gentile believers, there's no application that I've been able to find uh, to Gentile believers of this particular command. Uh, however, it does demonstrate a few things for us. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12, and verse number 10. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. And we can see throughout the Old Testament that God opposes cruelty to animals. He mentions it many times. Up from The most famous one is about the ox treading out the corn that thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. And we know that one's repeated in the New Testament, not to show us that we have to follow the same command as Gentiles, but to show us why that command was given. Paul refers back to it and says, does God care for oxen, or is this command given for our sake? And he says, well, obviously it's given for our sake, so that we can learn 
how to treat each other, and then Paul applies that to paying those that minister the gospel. Also applies it to uh, workers receiving their wages. And so we can take that principle of not being cruel to the oxen by muzzling them while they tread out the corn and apply that to us as even Gentile believers in response to paying for our pastor and uh, paying our employees and things like that. I think the same thing is true here from this example of the mother bird with her young. We can take that and find applications for us as Gentiles to demonstrate how much God is opposed to cruelty. If we're not even supposed to be so cruel as to kill both the mother bird and the the eggs at the same time, uh, then surely we're not to be cruel to each other. And so it just shows the extent to which God hates this idea of cruelty uh, of any sort, so much so that he hates the idea of cruelty towards animals that aren't even, they're alive, but they don't even matter. They don't have eternal souls. Uh, And yet God still wants us to not be cruel to them. Another thing this demonstrates for us is God's care for the environment. Now, the whole environmental scare and global warming, climate change, and all that, it's all pretty much just a hoax. Uh, Man's not going to affect global warming and ruin the seasons. God already promised that to us, that um, summer, winter, springtime, and harvest shall not cease. So we know that 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 whole thing's a hoax. However... We also know that we are to be stewards of the earth. God gave us the earth to have dominion over it and to subdue it. And so we're to be good stewards of that thing which God has given us. And this shows us God's care for the environment. Uh, Allowing the mother bird to go free helps ensure that the species will not go extinct. If you're constantly, every time you go out and get the eggs from the nest, you also kill the mother bird. Pretty soon there's not going to be any more of those particular birds or whatever birds happen to be in the area. Pretty soon they're going to be gone. Uh, When that happens, you have a lot of negative consequences on the environment because the environment's going to be overrun with insects, rodents, and snakes, all of which are controlled by the bird population. Uh, So it shows God's care for the environment uh, by telling the Jews that uh, they were not to kill both the mother bird and the eggs at the same time. So that's uh, the command picking the mother bird with her young. It doesn't really apply to us as Gentiles uh, directly, but it's something we can still learn from and uh, gain application for our use as well. Yes? Well, what you were saying on the environment, I, you know, I'm all for uh, you know, not polluting and, and not being cruel to animals, but it seems like in our society, those that shun God cling to things like they're going to save save the world through climate mm-hmm. change and through you know saving the whales and saving the turtles and saving the you know this that and the other thing because they don't believe that God has those in control right. and that uh, everything is in God's hands. They feel that if they don't step in, that uh, you know these things are going to perish. It, it's kind of Yeah, yeah. There's a reason that most of the environmental causes are run by uh, atheists and agnostics rather than Christians. Uh, and that's it. That's they don't trust God to take care of things. And we're still supposed to be responsible, but yeah. ultimately God's in control, and uh, He'll take care of uh, things that need to be taken care of there.
All right, any other comments or questions on this one? We'll go to one more. All right. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 24 and verse number 5. This is a passage that every young couple really likes. It's the command for the Jews to have a year-long honeymoon after getting married. Not the week or so honeymoon that uh, we normally have as Americans, but a year-long honeymoon. Now, of course, for them it wasn't a vacation, uh, but uh, let's read it. Deuteronomy 24, verse number 5. When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he hath taken. So the Jews were commanded to allow the new husbands to stay home for the first year of marriage. Now that doesn't mean they're staying home as a vacation the whole time. It means they're to do their, their work on their own property for that first year. So raising his own crops, tending to his own vineyards, his own business there at his house, instead of going abroad uh, for someone else or uh, being sent off to war or being sent off uh, as an ambassador for the, from the king to some other country. Uh, he's to stay at home with his wife for an entire year after being married. The purpose here is given as to be, be able to cheer up his wife. Uh, now, we can think of all kinds of humorous uh, reasons for that that she now she realizes who she married and so she's in the depths of despair uh, realizing this guy's worthless and everything her dad told her about him is coming true uh, I don't think that's what it means here um, I think what it means is that he's to be home in order to eliminate any anxiety that she may have about their livelihood uh, it's a big change for her she's going from being in her father's house to now being under a different man and she's got to be concerned whether or not this husband that she has married is actually going to be able to provide for her needs but also for the needs of their children and so by staying home for that year he's able to get the family business all taken care of and uh, off on a good start to assure her that he puts her livelihood and the livelihood of their children before other things such as uh, going to war, serving the king, traveling for business, all those things are secondary. Her livelihood and the livelihood of their children, the care of their family is his first priority and he shows that by staying home with her for that first year. Uh, and I think that's what it means here when it talks about cheering up his wife. So that's the Old Testament command. I got a question. Yes. Now back in that day, I don't see very much at all in the Old Testament about arranged marriages. Um, so I, I don't think the Jews followed that very much. I mean, they, they may have some to some extent. Most of the uh, people who say that, most of the scholars who say that back then they all had arranged marriages, no such thing as falling in love and dating and courting and all that, they're usually basing that off of other cultures that were around the Jews and they study what the, the habits were of those other cultures 
and then they apply those to the Jews of that same time period. But I don't think that's a good way to look at the Jewish culture because the Jews had something those other cultures did not, and that's the presence of God with them. Uh, and so I don't really, I haven't studied it in depth, but just thinking over the what when it's come up in other studies, I don't think there's very much evidence of arranged marriages uh, in the Jewish culture. Well, my point being in that regard, because, you know, again, there's really no, and the Bible doesn't say, talk to some Jews, you know, mm-hmm. and how far back it goes, you know, but I'm um, thinking that, you know, the first year, you know, the wife doesn't know the husband very well, but also gives them that time to know each other, they're, they're assuring each other, you know, of the commitment of the husband and wife. Right. Yep. There's at least three examples of arranged marriages in Yeah, there are some, but which one's... In all those cases, we don't know uh, if the marriage was, other than with uh, Caleb, well, even with Caleb, we don't know 100%, um, whether the um, the young couple getting married was already planning on being married, and it was arranged as in, like Samson going to his parents saying, uh, get that woman for me, she pleases me well. Mm-hmm. Of course, he was rebellious and going after the wrong woman but it was him going to his parents and saying this is the one I want to marry go get them and so that could have been the case in in these other situations as well Uh, with the exception of course of uh, uh, Abraham sending his servant and then possibly the exception of Caleb Um, but anyway you've got lots of examples similar to Samson also with him saying, this is the woman I want to marry. Now, parents, y'all give your approval and, and let's get this taken care of. Uh, other examples, uh, like David, uh, of course, Michael was promised to him by Saul, and we don't know the situation there. But with Abigail, uh, Abig- he married Abigail um, after her husband died, and he went and pursued her and, and married her. So it, it wasn't an arranged marriage there. That was because of his respect for her, because of the way she handled the conflict between him and her husband before her husband had died. And so, yeah, I have examples both ways in scriptures, and it's not real clear. But anyway, that's a, one of these days maybe I'll have to sit down and actually study it out, look at all the different marriages and find out the situ- as much as we can about each of the situations. I don't think that uh, I don't think that either one would be a sin, an arranged marriage or a non-arranged marriage. I don't. I you have marriage is honorable and all, and so I would say all marriages. God wants to be good marriages and wants the couple to 
be happy in the marriage to be successful no matter how the marriage came about. All right, so that's uh, that's the Old Testament command uh, for them to have that year-long honeymoon. As far as a New Testament application, there's no direct application of this to Gentile believers that I've been able to find. However, I think it's, it's fairly good advice for the husband to focus on his wife, make her the first priority, uh, and make her almost the sole priority during that first year of marriage especially, just to demonstrate to her how much he cares for her and how much he's committed to make the marriage work. And if you think about it, if you look at people that have gotten married and uh, the husband is gone for the first year, that's it's usually a rough marriage. They have a lot to overcome with him being gone that, that first year of marriage, whether that's gone because he's in the military or it's gone because he's always traveling for business. Uh, it, it presents complications. Now, they can be overcome, but it's still it's going to make the marriage a little bit rough when they start off on that footing. So I think it's good advice. I think this also demonstrates God's care for women. Um, if God didn't care about women, if they were just chattel, like so many people say the Old Testament treats women like they're just property, uh, if that were the case, then why would God bother with commanding the husband to do something to cheer up his wife? I mean, why would he bother with that the husband's going to lose out on some business opportunities because of this? He can't, for example, have the prestige of being an, a royal ambassador uh, from the king of, of the Jews to you know, say if it was during the time of David or Solomon. You've got the two greatest kings on the face of the earth, and one of them wants you to be his ambassador and go represent him uh, to some foreign land. And then you get married and you go and tell the king, sorry, I have to resign from this post. I mean, that's, that's a lot of prestige that the husband's turning down. So it shows God's demonst- or demonstrates God's care for women to say that, men, you need to focus on your wife rather than focusing on your job or on uh, serving the government or serving the king. Uh, your wife and your family is your first priority. So I think it, it, again, shows that God doesn't just see women as property but sees them as uh, individuals that are while he does describe them as the weaker vessel, they are individuals of high honor that uh, men are supposed to treat very, very well and treat better than they treat other men, uh, treat them with honor and respect. All right, so that's the command about the year-long honeymoon. So that's all we've got for today. Any other comments or questions this morning? All right, we'll go ahead and close a couple minutes early here. Brother Parsons, can you dismiss us in prayer?